to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. And welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Solo voy con mi pena. To Trauma Code on WBAI, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio on uh, my birthday, as it turns out, January 23rd, uh, and Dr. Raphael uh, can't be in studio with us. Uh, she'll be joining us uh, again next week when we have uh, a mental health topic uh, that I'll get back to before the end of the show, uh, and that music uh, was uh, one from my my sort of teenage years, uh, Clandestino by the Paris-born uh, uh, Manu Chao. Uh, he actually has a, a Spanish family, I think Galicia and the Basque country, who had to flee Spain during the Franco dictatorship. So even though that uh, sort of was sung for people who speak Spanish from the perspective of a Latin American migrant, um, that was, uh, I guess, a little bit of theater. But anyway, that song brings back memories of sort of graduating from high school for, for me. Um, but also, uh, our topic today, you know, if you were listening to the news break, of course, uh, there was more news of, of the sort of everyday mass shooting that we're way too comfortable with and that only kind of happens in this country, right, where 10 people were killed and another 10 injured uh, in Monterey Park. And as it turns out, I think there was four mass shootings that day. There's been more mass shootings than days of the year so far. So definitely a topic that we're going to get back on. But today I wanted to talk about uh, the the trauma of migration um, and I was uh, out last week. I was at a, a trauma surgery conference, uh, and I saw a very interesting uh, presentation on data, sort of academically looking at trauma along the border related to migration policy. And I wanted to invite uh, one of the authors of that st uh, study, Dr. William Marshall, uh, who is an acute care surgery fellow at University of California, San Diego. Uh, Dr. Marshall, uh, are you with us? Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I am. I can hear you. Thanks for having me on. And you're loud and clear on the air. Uh, thanks uh, for joining us virtually, at least, uh, here in, in Brooklyn, all the way from uh, California. And, of course, uh, by way of your medical education in Indiana and surgical training in Louisville, right? So I'm presuming, uh, does that mean you, you've done a critical care fellowship and are doing sort of a trauma acute care surgery uh, fellowship this year? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, I moved out here to California um, at the end of 2021 to complete my uh, critical care fellowship at UCSD and stayed on for a second year uh, to get some more training out here. So uh, it's been a good experience thus far and uh, been very enlightening as you will. We'll talk about the topic here today. Yeah, excellent. And, and welcome to the club of, of trauma surgeons. It's a small world and I'm very uh, happy to have you on the air. 
Um, and yeah, we can get right into it. Uh, as I mentioned, you you've done some uh, research recently with your uh, with your group out in San Diego, looking at the trends of trauma to migrants related to um, to changes in policy along the border. Um, but first, can you tell us just to get a sense of who you are and what kind of work you do? What is the clinical work that you're doing out there in in, in San Diego? Yeah, sure. So um, the clinical work involves taking care of injured patients and also patients who need um, surgery for acute illnesses. And so um, we're taking care of, um, you know, gunshot wounds, stab wounds. We're taking care of critically ill people in the ICU. We're taking care of people who uh, sustain injuries and car accidents. Really, we take care of the whole gamut of patients who uh, uh, require uh, the services of a trauma surgeon. Um, And so uh, like I said, I'm I'm still in training, but uh, a lot of the training wheels have been taken off, so to speak, and uh, really getting my feet wet uh, managing these complex patients. And you know, I, I sort of I, I met you kind of running out of the room, but after presenting uh, your work, uh, looking as I mentioned at injuries along the border, um, can you just uh, briefly tell us, without getting into the details of the paper, what was sort of the title? What was the sort of the question you were looking at? Yeah, sure. Uh, The title of the paper um, was Up and Over, the Consequences of the Heightening of the U.S.-Mexico Border Wall. And what we're specifically looking at were injury patterns and the number of patients who sustain injuries by crossing the border wall in Southern California. Um, We started studying – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, well – so I guess, first of all, tell us wh- why is that of interest to you? Did you guys just taking care of patients notice a change in the patterns or, or why why was this something that you wanted to stand up, you know, in, in front of all your peers and talk about? Yeah, it's um, we, we certainly started looking at these injuries um, really out of necessity. We were um, noticing that, you know, for every patient, you know, historically five or 10 years ago, um, it, it was really a rare phenomenon that, that people would come through our trauma bay um, with injuries sustained from falling from a height. In this instance, patients falling from the border wall uh, that uh, is along the U.S.-Mexico border area in Southern California. Um, we noticed that the trauma census at our facility at UCSD at the, uh, the Hillcrest location, which is our level one trauma center at UCSD, we noticed that you know your average trauma census of 20 to 30 patients was going up 50 to 100% in many instances and sustaining that number for over long periods of time because of the number of patients who were sustaining injuries falling from the border wall area. Uh, We also partnered with another uh, level one trauma center within San Diego County, uh, which was the Scripps Mercy Hospital, which as the crow flies is only a couple blocks from our medical center. But um, with our kind of trauma centers combined catchment area, we service the entire westernmost 30 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border um, that shares its border along uh, with Tijuana south of the border. We were really looking to quantify um, the economic footprint as well as inpatient utilization resources to care for that are by large result, an unintended result of border wall policy. So you're in and out there for a moment, but what I basically got is you wanted to look at what was the cost basically um, to your patients and to the hospitals from this change in the border wall height. Is that about right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Cost was certainly one of the biggest um, the biggest takeaways of the study that we did, but also more so just looking at the the amount of resources that must be dedicated to manage uh, this this unintended consequence of raising of the border wall height, which was in theory um, 
the border wall was raised to more secure the border, but it, it this is really an unintended side effect of that policy. Well, we're going to get to that question of intention because I think it's an important one. Um, but uh, let's start in the beginning, and we're beginning with the end in mind, as they say. You're not uh, you're not a guy from the borderlands, right? So, did you have to do some uh, research and studying of the migration history of that area in, in getting into this research? Yeah, I'm a I'm a Midwesterner by um, by birth. I grew up in Indiana, which does not share a border with uh, uh, Mexico by any means. But um, yeah, coming out here, um, I was um, became very well versed with terms like border fall, border trauma. Um, I didn't know what border call was until I came out here. Um, so yeah, it, it was very much something that um, had to do a little bit of digging to really kind of understand the historical significance and kind of the chain of events that kind of led us to where we are at now. And, you know, I, I just played that song from 1998, um, and I think it was around the year 2000, I made friends with uh, a, a guy from Berlin, um, and I don't remember the time period, but he pointed out that there was a short time period um, in the late 90s where deaths along the border in the U.S. in something like a year, I don't remember how many, I wish I had the date in front of me, but was more than it ever happened along all the years of the Berlin Wall and that uh and that divided line between uh east and west germany um so mm -hmm. can can you give you know you're going to talk about uh injuries and death along the border um but what is the the history of that kind of uh clandestine migration and specifically um you know the the, the risk to life and limb that migrants are facing is there can you give us a little sense of how that has changed over the decades and generations the border itself that is shared between U.S. and Mexico is about 2,000 miles long. A lot of that is kind of naturally policed and naturally barricaded by natural landmarks such as uh, bodies of water. The Rio Grande River, for example, in Texas, also inhospitable desert regions such as in western or I'm sorry, in eastern California and much of Arizona. Uh, there's approximately 140 miles of U.S.-Mexico border that is shared within the state of California itself. One of the busiest border crossing areas that is utilized legally is the San Ysidro border area, which is just south of San Diego proper. And there's approximately 30 million people that traverse that border legally uh, between people on foot in addition to people in vehicles on an annual basis. The, the problem uh, that therein lies that there's multiple political determinants, such as prohibitively long visa wait times that takes you know up, up to a couple of years to get a visa to come over to this country in addition to other more recent policies such as Title 42, which is an entirely separate lecture in and of itself that has ultimately led people for decades crossing the border illegally by traversing the border wall itself. We know that about 97% of all border apprehensions that occur in this country occur at this, the southwesternmost border, which includes California and Arizona. The, the border wall itself dates back as far as the 1910s, when actually Mexico was the first country of the two to put up a stretch of fence, um, which was approximately six feet tall and made of barbed wire. These were centered around border towns within the Southwest. Uh, the U.S. kind of matched that policy in the 1940s when it put up some chain link fences around the time of World War II along the southern border in the United States. The first kind of recent iteration of border of the border wall that we now know today was installed under the George H.W. Bush administration. And then this was continued under um, uh, the auspice of Operation Gatekeeper during the Clinton administration. 
Um, this period in border security saw the budgets of immigration departments double along with the personnel in border patrol and customs patrol agencies uh, double as well. The wall was again heightened um, under the legislation passed in 2006 called the Secure Fence Act of 2006. And this was signed into Bush by, or this was signed into uh, law by the George W. Bush administration. And then the most recent iteration of the wall, which, which is the whole kind of crux of, the, of our paper and our project, which is why we looked at this, was there was an executive order that was passed on the very first day of the Trump administration. And this allocated funds to increase the height of the border wall from 10 to 30 feet. And this was completed in December of 2019. Um, kind of... If through that very brief historical lesson, you can really appreciate that border security and border policy is really historically a bipartisan um, issue. Um, it's something that really kind of waxes and wanes as it pertains to the flavor of the week. Uh, but it's, it's certainly how we arrive at the current iteration of our border wall and the policy therein is really a bipartisan effort. And and I recall that, and I believe that there's a good uh, you know research on this that the consequence of the uh, some of the border walls that you talked about um, before earlier in the you know the turn of the century um, was pushing migration away from corridors urban corridors basically into what you described as inhospitable desert um, and there's been mm -hmm. uh, literature on on the the morbidity and mortality of of that I believe um, and uh, one of the things that you know you mentioned about intention um, did you has anyone really you know, he this. You mentioned that the the border wall change under Trump was done on the first day. Was there any um, study or justification in terms of you know what was expected to be happen? You know, why thirty feet rather than ten feet? You know, was there and was this well thought out in any way, or was is this all symbolic, or is it hard to tell? Um, without wading into the waters of um the the politicized nature of this issue everybody has an opinion on this and the whole one one of the biggest points of the paper was trying to look at this through a very apolitical lens well i guess I the question that, i'm getting at was there a needs assessment or anything like that the when you, when you look back historically over the last decade there are based on the number of apprehensions and encounters by customs and border patrol agents um there had been records that had been sent basically in successive years I, I, I won't say that the number was always eclipsed, but the number was very static in the decade before that kind of that executive order was passed. And so um, I, I also think there was a symbolic component of the wall being erected in such a fashion. Um, when, when you look at the data about, you know, how high a wall needs to be for somebody to die from falling from it, what we call an LD50 or a lethal dose of a, of a height, so to speak. Um, that 30 feet is really kind of approaching that LD50 for falling from height. And so um, I don't know specifically if that was the height that was implemented for that very reason, but um, we do know that the wall went up over 20 feet uh, just based on that legislation alone. Right, and, and that came up uh, during your talk in exactly that term, LD50, um, that right... As you mentioned, it, it uh, you know the the chance of of dying from a fall from ten feet uh, is much much less uh, than thirty feet, and I think it's somewhere around what was the the comment around forty feet, around half the people who fall, it's going to be a fatal injury. Is that about right? That's correct. Um, so then, tell us a little bit. Uh, what were your findings? What were the changes that you found? Um, you know, from the hospital perspective, um, 
uh, from the first responder perspective because of this change in the border wall height along the southwestern border? Yeah, sure. So, um, like I said, we, our, our paper was a, a joint effort between us and the other level one trauma center in town um, that services a similar catchment area to us. And uh, that was the Scripps Mercy facility that I alluded to previously. But we looked at basically historical norms before the passing of that executive order that allocated those funds and, and basically pre-heightening of the border wall. And we collective we collected data in a very retrospective fashion and compared patients who were injured from falls from the border wall before the completion of the heightening and after completion of the heightening. Um, across the board, when you look at before the wall was heightened to after the wall was heightened, inpatient resource utilization, so the number of injuries sustained, the number of operations required to address these injuries, um, the um, amount of manpower required, such as the surgeons and doctors taking care of these patients, the nurses taking care of these patients, the physical beds that these patients occupy in the hospital, all of that I would encompass as a as resource utilization and really inpatient resource utilization has exploded since completion of the heightened wall back in December of 2019. When you look at the actual number of admissions um, that were of, of people that were so injured that they required admission to either our facility or our, this, uh, our, our counterparts facility, uh, admissions were up almost 1000% when you compare the historical mm -hmm. norm in 2016 to 2021, the the year that had the most complete data for which we looked at for our study. And, and that, we denom now have that denominator is for oh, all trauma patients, not just falls? Uh, no, so that, that number in and of itself is looking at the number of patients admitted for fall-related trauma before completion, and then yeah. comparing that to the number of admissions related to fall-related trauma after completion. Got it, which basically when you look at the it sounds like. Yeah. It, uh, when you look at the total number of uh, fall-related trauma admissions compared to the total number of trauma admissions, that number pre-2016 was approximately 1% to 2%, and that number is up to approximately 10% across oh. both centers. Um, so 1 in 10 patients being admitted to our facility or Scripps Mercy are the result of fall-related trauma from the border, which is a pretty staggering wow. number. Well, and uh... – so do you have uh, data on the number of, of deaths and severe disability resulting from, you know, your study period from that uh, change in, in border wall height? The, the, more, the overall mortality and, I guess, injury severity, that was more um, – that was not the sole focus of this paper. We do have some of that data in our manuscript itself. Um, I believe the actual number, eight people total um, – were died as the result of their fall related injuries. Those are the only the patients that actually made it to a hospital to be triaged. Right. Um, people, people could have succumbed to their injuries without being transported to either of our facilities. But um, there was not a, a considerable difference between pre and post heightening of the wall. Our center at UCSD has looked at this previously in a, in a different uh, project that was published in JAMA Surgery actually last year, um, where just for our single center experience, um, mortality, you know, mortality or people dying from their injuries was greater after the wall was heightened. In, these patients were also more injured after completion of the heightened wall. And again, uh, another similar finding to ours, inpatient resource utilization was considerably higher after 2020. So um, our single center has proved that out previously. Wow. Uh, and uh, for people who are just tuning in, this is Trauma Code. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon on the air with Dr. William Marshall, an acute care uh, surgery fellow out of UC San Diego. Uh, and we're talking about uh, his group's research into 
changes in injury patterns uh, because of the change in the border wall height under the t- Trump administration, uh, and which has basically shown a significant increase in the amount of trauma patients from falls at the border wall. Now, about 10% of the inpatient trauma service, it sounds like. Um, so um, what else, anything else in your research you came across that, that you think that uh, should be highlighted? I think a, 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 the other big kind of component of our paper was looking at costs, um, not so much the reimbursement, so to speak, but kind of the overall kind of burden on these two trauma centers to manage these patients that are, again, a very unintended consequence of this border policy um, implemented without really any input from healthcare providers who take care of these patients. And so um, when you look at the cost data for management of these patients and these injuries that they've sustained, um, over from basically from 2016 through the first half of 2022, just these two trauma centers alone incurred about $83 million in hospital costs, with over 70, $72 million of that occurring after heightening of the border wall at the end of 2019. And when you look at, on an individual basis, median costs, which is um, the median costs for individuals who sustain these injuries is up on the scale of tens of thousands of dollars on a per patient basis compared to before the wall was heightened to after. So there is a profound cost kind of message in the data that we looked at as well. And now you're looking at a, uh, I would say relatively small portion of the border. And and you can tell us, I believe areas in Texas also heightened the the border wall. Um, You know, where does your work stand within the understanding of the, you know, what's going on on the entire length of that border? Yeah, um, you know, certainly um, previous work that our center has done looking at this issue um, when compared to this project, this is certainly kind of a different spin on it, so to speak. And this the spin of our paper was really to kind of define the strain that the trauma centers and the individuals, uh, you know, the providers that take care of these patients are really feeling both from a resource standpoint and from a financial standpoint to manage patients who fall from the border wall. the prior work that we discussed really kind of had already defined the relationship between the increased wall height injury severity. But really, when you look at the explosion of wall-related trauma, um, this, this uh, not coincidentally coincides with really the COVID-19 pandemic, hmm. which is an entirely separate issue in and of itself. But um, you, uh, for our area and for our region, that really puts two different novel strains on the resources it takes to manage patients in, an, in, in a hospital setting. And so we really wanted to assess um, that strain on the resources and the economic impact of these injuries, as well as really further highlighting uh, this emerging public health crisis to the public in our region. And do you have a sense if the same similar thing is happening in other parts of the border, in other medical centers? Certainly. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, you know, we, we service just 30 miles of the entire 2,000-mile uh, border region, uh, border uh, between U.S. and Mexico, um, certainly based on the discussions that we had at our talk that you attended uh, down in Orlando, it seems like um, other centers such as in El Paso um, and others, other surgery groups within Arizona and Texas, they are really feeling uh, similar strain um, to uh, from areas of the wall that had been heightened in their areas, but I can't speak to the exact data that they are experiencing, but it certainly seems like a more, it, it's not geographically confined to just 
the San Diego area. It certainly seems like this is something that's occurring um, along all of the states that share a border with Mexico. And and I think it's worth pointing out, um, and and I think you know that that Manu Chao example, he sometimes goes back and forth between talking about uh, the you know um, the Latin American experience and then puts in Mediterranean references. Uh, you know, we've seen policing of uh, and, and sort of the militarization of those borders of the border waters, and then you know bodies washing up on shore. Um, that this, you know, your experience you're describing fits into a global pattern of the trauma of migration, right? Do you have, from your research, do you have any any sense of 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 where that fits in? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you would think sharing a border with um, Mexico, uh, just to the south of you, it would be pre- predominantly um, people immigrating from Mexico itself. But we we experience and, and we admit patients who are migrating from all over the world uh, through that San Ysidro border area in Southern California, people in, people from India, Jamaica, Africa, Russia. Um, these, it, the, these, these people, they, they do not have a single defining event that leads them to get them on top of the wall and to fall 30 feet. But you have to assume that many of these patients who are willing to climb a wall and fall 30 feet into the unknown and into the mm-hmm. abyss Oftentimes in the middle of the night, in the middle of fog and rain, you really have, um, I empathize with them. They must be fleeing certainly some sort of traumatic event in their past already. And so the injuries that these people sustain only adds to that burden that they carry. And so we're investigating this a little bit further now. Um, we've started interviewing some patients who allow us um, to really better understand specific reasons of what they're fleeing, why they're fleeing in previous situations or circumstances. And we're really trying to see what resources or information, if any, would alter their journeys across the border. Mm. And it's really kind of a certainly an unorthodox injury prevention issue at hand here. And I, I guess that starts to speak at um, anything else you want to add to how can we use the knowledge that's uh, been garnered from the research uh, from you and your group and your institution? That's a really good question. Um, the, the applications of this, um, you know, when you look at the number of people that are crossing the border illegally, if you want to use that term, was over 2 million people back in 2022. Um, in 2021, it, it had already surpassed the year before that. But in 2021 and 2022, nearly 4 million people were encountered by customs agents and border patrol agents uh, along the southern border. And so we're seeing these record numbers of encounters even after this wall was heightened and completed. I do think our work is just one piece of the puzzle that's required to address this. And I really think that our work highlights that the wall, which was built and supported by many in this country, um, again, bipartisan support in this country, due to its perception of being this unclimbable barrier, it's really anything but that. And if the wall is not really stopping people from crossing, and it's really compounding the financial impact for the American taxpayers that have to reimburse these hospital systems for injuries sustained from falling from this wall. I really hope that our work sheds a little bit of light on the wall's inefficiency as a migrant deterrent. Have, have you uh, or anyone in your group been able to present this work or discuss this work with any decision makers, lawmakers uh, in that region or, or nationally? I am certainly not uh, the top brass in my uh, in my group, so to speak. I personally have not spoken to um, local legislators or anything like that. I do know that some of my bosses, um, certainly 
doctors uh, Costantini, who was the PI on this project, as well as Dr. Doucette, who does a lot of advocacy work in San Diego County. Um, I, I, I know that they've been in contact with uh, certainly local um, legislators, local politicians talking about the issue at hand here. Um, honestly, whether it has been escalated beyond that is unknown to me. Um, I do know that it, it has garnered a little bit of um, certainly local spotlight in the local media as well as um, some, some national attention recently. And um, I, I certainly know that both me and my bosses would be happy to talk about our research in a very apolitical fashion to anybody who wants to hear about it. I think that's the uh, really having those types of conversations is really the only way to address this problem. And, you know, I appreciate you're a uh, still a trainee at a public institution. Um, but, you know, I, I you you. Uh, describe these as unintentional consequences. Uh, and what I was reminded as, as sort of the discussion of your paper came up was an article about um, the child separation policy, um, you know, and, and that had, you know, really well documented and profound effects on some children who, as far as I can tell, were never, you know, you know, toddlers and, and young children who were separated from their families at the border and never reunited uh, with their families, um, and the title of that uh, news article was "The Cruelty Is the Point." Um, and you know, I, I just and I guess the way I thought this is is if you if there's no justification, data justification for uh, this border wall policy, um, you know, is it symbolism or is the cruelty the point? Is the harm to the people crossing it was that the point of putting up the wall? I don't yeah, know if you can answer uh, that, a, but I, th I think that question, you know, needs to be asked or at least considered. I, I think that's an excellent question to ask. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly feel that um, the the border the border wall is exactly like you said, very symbolic in such a way that it was something that a lot of people who were concerned about the security of the border could rally behind. Um, regarding whether cruelty is the point of the wall, I don't think I'm as melancholy as that would suggest, but um, I, I, I would like to think that regardless of whichever political party um, the listeners of this show support, uh, if you really look objectively at the wall's efficacy as a deterrent of migration, um, I, I hope you would uh, consider or reconsider a different mindset about the, wall, the wall's role moving forward. And, and really, in the meantime, it's our jobs as, you know, as the clinicians in Southern California to continue, continue caring for uh, injured patients who need it, um, you know, both in the form of direct patient care when they become injured, as well as advocating for their well-being in a preventative way. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think that is an excellent point, that if, if the um, justification for all this expenditure was as a deterrent, the data does not support that it was effective as such. Uh, and there's additional consequences to the individuals as well as the institutions and the resources, the local area, in taking care of all of these injured people falling from such a high height um, from the you know the obstacle that was put in their way in this obstacle course in uh, in people trying to find a better life for them and their families. Yeah, that's correct. Anything else about uh, you know your research and your work while we have you on the air that you want to uh, to make a point of discussing? Um, I, I really think we've kind of ran the gamut. I uh, appreciate the uh, the opportunity all the way from the East Coast to uh, uh, allow me to talk about this very, again, it seems like a very geographically isolated issue, but I can assure you it's not. It really does have downstream 
effects and downstream consequences for anybody listening to this program. So I might appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. And for any guests that I, I have on, I like to try to, I don't know if it's lighten it up or, or just, uh, you know, peek around the corner a little bit. And hopefully I gave you enough advance notice, but I like to ask for any kind of cultural recommendation, uh, book, music, movie, performance, visual art that you want to uh, bring to our audience's attention that, that you would want to share with them. Yeah, sure. Uh, certainly not a philosophical or, um, you know, a book to really ponder about. It's a very much a nonfiction work, but uh, the title of the book is Endurance by Alfred Lansing. This is a book written back in the 1950s um, about a failed transantarctic voyage by Sir Ernest Shackleton, uh, who was uh, an explorer who was attempting to cross the entire Antarctic shelf back in the 19, I believe this was in 1912. Um, the, the boat that they were sailing on was named the endurance, which is where the title of the book comes from. And this book, or I'm sorry. And the, the boat actually sunk after running aground on some ice shelving, um, about a hundred miles from Antarctica itself. And everyone on board that boat, which is, I think there was 27 people total. They survived for nearly two years by floating on this ice pack and eating seagulls and seals for, um, uh, until they were rescued. And actually yeah. they, they became rescued because, Shackleton and uh, I believe five other of his men in a very selfless act climbed aboard a, a wooden life raft and traversed the uh, the most violent sea in the entire world uh, around the South Horn or the South Horn of South America and which was considered uh, to this day the most daring and dangerous sea voyages ever successfully completed. So um, it's, it's a very good book. I think there's a lot of parallels between uh, medical training in that book itself. And so maybe that's why I relate to it a lot, but it's a very good read. So what's the lesson? If you take on uh, ambitious uh, goals, be ready to uh, to uh, to do the work required? What is? Be, yeah, be, uh, if you're willing to take on such ambitious goals, be willing to adapt when things don't go your way and be prepared to, you know, be prepared to eat, you know, two years worth of seagulls and seals <laughs> before uh, your salvation arrives. So well, uh, Dr. Marshall, it's a pleasure to uh, virtually get to know you. And again, for people just listening, this is Trauma Code on WBAI. I'm Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon, and we've been discussing the uh, the uh, death and injuries along the southwestern border since the heightening of the border wall, uh, and specifically the, the cost uh, and the uh, strain on the health system in the San Diego area that has resulted. So uh, thanks again for joining us, uh, William, and I think we're going to do a, a little musical break here before we hop back on. Thank you very much for having me. Happy birthday and uh, happy second birthday to my nephew, Connor, as well. Excellent.
sous nous. Désespoir de envahir. Pas de manger, pas même de l'eau. Que sauter de en bas de l'eau. Que yon qui dit passer pour le tapouner. Il tapite la gueule de back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on the air. Uh, and we just had an interview with uh, Dr. William Marshall out in San Diego talking about the trauma of migration, specifically the additional strain on the hospital system there after heightening the border wall under the uh, Trump administration. And I believe we should have on the air our lovely co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Uh, Dr. Raphael, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. I've been listening in to you and Dr. Marshall, a very interesting conversation. Um, one that, we, you know, we really need to have as uh, yeah, things are, are kind of changing in this country. There's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of strife internationally that are causing people to move move around, basically. And we have to understand kind of like how that impacts us and also how that impacts them. And certainly right? the, so, the trauma of migration is, is, a, is a rich topic. And uh, I, one of my uh, good friends, Ryan Harvey, had spent some time on a ship in the Mediterranean kind of scooping people out of the water at the height of that wave of Syrian and Afghani, especially refugees coming into Europe. Um, and, and I think that's the point is that this is, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, it, it rises and falls. But the trauma of migration, I think, is going to be an evergreen topic until – or if anything changes in terms of kind of the global economics and the geopolitics. That's right. That's right. And so that, that song that you just played was called Histoire d'Ol by the Haitian artist Bello off of his 2005 album La Coute Tranquille. Uh, so the title Histoire d'Ol translates to Strange Story. Uh, it's about five young men who take to the seas to leave Haiti and the song speaks of the circumstances leading to their departure and the difficulties and the risks endured both physical and emotional or mental of leaving a land that they love, yet feeling compelled to be established in a new place by you know, whatever the circumstances are. So in the song, Bello also describes how even in the new land, there are difficulties and sometimes second guesses about the decision to leave the homeland. And in this song, the five guys described in the song are traveling by boat, and you've, you've referenced this 
a few times in your conversation, although mostly with Dr. Marshall, you were speaking about uh, land travel. But of course, the dangers and the hope of migration are shared between expatriates. Um, so again, that's Histoire d'Ol by Haitian world beat artist Bello off of his 2005 album La Coute Conquille. And if that sound or the story resonates with any of the listeners and you wish to know more or hear more of that artist, Bello is spelled B-E-L-O. And I would encourage you to check him out. Is he someone that uh, tours and plays in the New York area? Oh, I suppose he does. In fact, I think we might have used to know a guitarist who has played with him before. So I imagine he must. But uh, I'll have to look it up and get back to you for a later a later cultural uh, recommendation in future shows. We'll, we'll let you know what Bello's up to if he's in the area and opportunities to visit with him. Excellent. And uh, you know, I think why don't we put on another uh, musical interlude, uh, a song and an artist that I think you're a big fan of. No, oh, let's do that then. We never really knew what he was thinking. Was it a tune? Was it a dream? He was an enigma. We never really knew just where his mind's at. Deep in his brain, was he insane? Monk dancing away, ivories at play. His sound, his touch, his music will live with us down through the years. Oh, 
Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald again in studio, and that was Esperanza Spalding. I think uh, the title of the song is, I think, Dream of Monk, off of her new album with Fred Hirsch. Um, and sorry about that. I was just having a little bit of fun uh, playing something new. Uh, uh, What's your birthday? So I guess you're <laughs> you're entitled to a little bit of fun on today's on today's show. And I wanted to look hip playing some new music for the people, but we've <laughs> seen Esperanza Spalding has played a bunch in uh, New York. Has played um, with uh, what's his name? Oh, now I'm blanking at the Blue Note. Um, uh, and played on Robert Glasper with Robert Glasper and, and was on right. his last album. What was it called? Uh, mm-hmm. Black Radio Three something. Black like Radio. That. Right. That's right. Um, and we saw her live. It must have been again in the before times uh, in, uh, in a, at a concert in Red Hook. Uh, so anyway, someone that plays in New York, someone that's a lot of fun. Uh, some some new kind of you know new jazz, contemporary jazz uh, that's exciting and 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 creative. And I was just having a little bit of fun with that. Um, but uh, Dr. Raphael, is there anything else that you wanted to talk to us? Uh, anything else we should talk about the? Uh, the strain of migration. We were just playing um, that uh, Haitian uh, song from Bello about, uh, you know, basically the trauma of migration, right? Right, right. And um, and obviously we spoke. We've spoken about the the physical risks and dangers that one can incur. And I just, you know, obviously there are also a lot of uh, factors that affect the mental health of uh, of you know expatriates or, or you know migrants. Um, and, and it can be even worse for those who have pre-existing vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, I, I had some thoughts about that. If Absolutely. And I, and I know me. even just from my, uh, you know, somewhat limited um, experience in, in studying migration that, um, you know, in, in addition in addition to the trauma, the post-traumatic stress, you know, the loss, the um, depression, that there's also... Uh, there's sort of a, and correct me if you, if you understand this better than me, a sort of a cognitive dissonance of going from uh, what what one really understands into a whole new world where your your skills and your education aren't really valued. You don't speak the language, um, and, I, and as I understand it, leads to increased rates of psychosis and, and other other mental health problems that are a toll of of that changing of the world, especially people who migrate um, in that uh, in that age where where they're kind of vulnerable. Right, and if you know, it's not uncommon for for folks, particularly those who are undocumented and have difficulty accessing certain services, they, they might feel like they don't really fit in with any community, and so there's a little bit of a sense of you know a, a sense of loss, right? So not just the sense of loss of whatever you're leaving behind in the homeland, but also a loss of identity. Um, you may not feel connected to other folks. Um, you know, obviously, we're doctors talking to doctors about the migrant experience. But some some folks may not trust doctors. Um, they might have other systems of, of health or wellness, and they may not trust therapists or, you know, other professionals, teachers. They you know they, they don't necessarily feel like they're understood, and that can definitely beget some feelings of depression, um, some feelings of, of stress, right? And th- and these are internal factors, right? That that feeling of isolation, living in fear. A little bit, right? Because doing routine things, going shopping, going to work, um, all all seem to carry a certain risk of being found or you know or or discovered. 
And um, again, that that's a definitely easily beget some some anxious feelings for sure. And those are internal factors, like I said. They're also external factors, right? Um, things that are even less within their control. Uh, any kind of discrimination that they might face, any kind of harassment. Um, you know, maybe due to language barriers, maybe because of the way they look, the way they dress, who knows? Like there, there might be various things that kind of make them susceptible to some to some amount of harassment. Um, lack of access, right? If, especially if they don't have documentation, it kind of gets hard for them to pursue certain services. And then they can, again, feel even more isolated. Um, so those are some of the things, and there's more, but go ahead, Dr. Hitz. Well, no, I was just saying we do live in uh, the capital of the world that's better resourced than a lot of places uh, and even, you know, the, the now basic luxury at this point of a functional um, health and hospitals, uh, municipal health and hospital system, are there resources in a place like New York, um, you know, for people struggling, um, you know, friends and family uh, struggling uh, from the from the aftermath of migration that, that uh, people should be aware of? Yes, I, I mean, the health and hospitals, uh, certainly they, you know, safety net hospital, if they, they basically treat anybody. And I think that one of the points that Dr. Marshall was making is that they've incurred, like hospital systems incur a lot of uh, cost treating folks who, um, well, have no uh, healthcare connection, can't really afford services, and but, but they're hurt, they're injured. And, and that's what the safety hospitals are are there to, to do. Um, I've heard of one other organization, uh, Global Trauma Research, and I know that they have some clinics on Nostrand Avenue in Flatbush, and they often serve uh, folks who are in Brooklyn who identify as being immigrant or of immigrant communities, and and they do a lot of work with them on um, well, a lot of culturally competent mental health care work, right? And and so that's very valuable, especially you know there's right now President Biden has or is is planning to make um, immigration, I guess, what much more accessible than what it has been. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of these folks coming and, and needing to talk. I mean, if, if they're into that, if, if they have the kind of the, the emotional intelligence and the insight to kind of want to speak about their experience and what they're leaving behind and understanding that it, it's been a difficult road for them, most likely. So having them be able to engage in mental health care might be beneficial uh, if they're if they're willing, if they're interested, and it's a very good service. So anyway, Global Trauma Research. I just I just want to shout out that organization for the work that they do, the culturally competent healthcare work that they do. And as we get to uh, the bottom of the hour, uh, anything that you want to say next week? We're planning on having um, focusing more on issues of mental health. Um, do you want to speak any more about about that topic or the guest? Oh, well, I believe we're having uh, Dr. Anthony Thomas, a, a friend, fellow psychiatrist, um, who is based on the West Coast as well. But a SUNY Dallas uh, right State now. graduate uh, from here in Brooklyn. That's right. Brooklyn in the house. Um, right. So, and, and I think he had some plans to speak on mental health, particularly in, in men, and how that's become increasingly a hot topic. Um, you know, in my work, I work with parents. I work with children. Uh, and sometimes single dads, and I understand a lot of the pressures that they might feel and 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 how they relate to mental health care and right. Dr. Thomas is you know the expert on that he 's a psychiatrist, but he apparently does a lot of psychotherapy um, 
So we'll be discussing and, and, the, the unique challenges uh, for uh, health, mental health care and wellness uh, in men and those unique pressures that are being better understood now than, than they have previously. Or, and, and better understood, hopefully, you know, more talked about, you know, come, coming more and more to the forefront. Um, so, yeah, that'll be a great, should be a great show. I'm looking forward to having Dr. Thomas on. Excellent. Well, and as we uh, get to to the, I guess, is it the bottom or the top of the hour? I guess it rolls over. Uh, but definitely, if you appreciate the Trauma Code, we appreciate you. Don't forget to support WBAI. Keep this site on the air with all of its uh, rich history uh, and resources in New York City. You can uh, call in uh, to, to do that by phone, 212-209-2950, uh, or online at uh, give to WBAI.org. That was a number two, or just on WBAI.org. You can look that up. And definitely, uh, we appreciate if you uh, give money to the station and mention that you appreciate our show to let them know the value that we bring uh, to you from the station. So definitely, we uh, ask for your support. And uh, as we kind of do almost every week now, it seems like, uh, pay uh, some tribute to another uh, artist uh, who has left us, although. He got to live a long and fulfilled life, and that, of course, is David Crosby of The Birds, of Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, and Young. Um, and uh, I want to play a song that uh, is uh, long time gone, was played uh, in 1969 at their second ever gig, which, of course, was the Woodstock, that long time gone was also the name of his autobiography. And he's someone that survived not only... Uh, comorbidities, his uh, diabetes and history of heart attacks, but he was someone who abused uh, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, had to have a liver transplant, um, and even did a, a, jail t uh, a jail stint in Texas, uh, but lived to the ripe old age of 81 and, and has a lot to uh, show for it, a lot of accomplishments. All right, thank and you. happy birthday, Dr. <laughs> and Thanks for joining us on Trauma Code. Take care. Need a peace to be found. 
Hey! 